Warning. The Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Welcome to Not Real Art, the podcast that celebrates creative culture worldwide. You're joined by your favorite host, Man One and Sourdough here. Yo, what yo, up, Man cool. One? What's up? How you doing? Dude, man, I'm living my quarantine life. How you doing? <laughs> best quarantine life? I mean, I would be living my best quarantine life, yeah. but turns out my seven-year-old and my three-year-old uh, have other plans. Be living your best quarantine life if you were quarantined from the family. <laughs> exactly right yeah. yeah 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 you know all these memes and bullshit going around about oh learn new skills read new books binge watch netflix yeah oh hell no. no no clearly the assholes that write that shit don't have kids climbing on them right right i actually saw some stuff on twitter where people refusing to teach their kids like, <laughs> no no but what? N- not as a joke they're very serious. It says like a my kid is in preschool or first grade or whatever. Yeah. You're giving me handouts to give to him or whatever, but what he really needs is social activity. He needs to be with other kids. That's what he really needs right now. He doesn't need to be sitting down trying to fill out this paperwork, right? So for my child's mental health, I'm not going to do and plus I have a full-time job that I have to do at home and it's just so much stress going on right now. So for my child's mental health, I'm not going to do any schooling with him. I'm just going to let him run around, have fun, and play. He doesn't need to be worried about what's going on with this whole pandemic and doing stuff that a normal first grader wouldn't be doing normally, which is sit there and just fill out paperwork. So that was, that's some of the take I've seen on there. So you're telling – this is a revelation to me, by the way. Yeah. So what you're telling me is I can just fucking quit. I can literally <laughs> just be like, you know what? I'm not teaching my kids. That's I not my it. job. I've seen threads, threads on Twitter about it. People are just yanking their kids up. Don't yeah. tease me, man. Every day they're yank, just yanking their kids. I've said from day one that the homeschooling will kill me before the virus does. <laughs> just saying, there's alternatives. <laughs> I mean, this the second grade shit is no joke. I'm like literally yeah. like five hours a day. Yeah, yeah. dealing with you know, and me and the missus we split it up, but right. my daughter. You remember how the substitute teacher always got the short end of the stick, like, you know, always got harassed. Okay. Absolutely. Well, between my daughter's mom and I, yeah. Guess who's the substitute teacher? And they're throwing spit wads at you probably all day long. Dude, I am so the substitute teacher. (laughs) When her mom comes, it's like best behavior. Of course. Of course. I walk in, spitballs. Yeah, I see it. Well, maybe you need to walk out on the job. You need to protest. Man, oh man. Well, I tell you, <laughs> it's no joke. Forget your kids' mental health. What about your mental health? You know, what about that? <laughs> well, there was a funny meme going around talking about this generation of kids will be known as the generation that was homeschooled by day drinkers. <laughs> it's like, maybe you should how am I coping? Beer. That'd be kind of a cool, I don't know, that's a cool test. Let's see. How inebriated do you have to be for your wife to finally fire you 
as the teacher of her kids. She's just looking for an excuse. You know what I'm saying? Do a six pack tomorrow morning. Let me know how, the, how that goes. If it doesn't, you're still on the job tomorrow night. I say double it. Let's <laughs> just see what, at what point is it like, okay, these kids can't. Yeah. Can't. Our kids' intellectual <laughs> development isn't as important as getting this asshole out of the house. Right, right. Yeah, man. Yeah, well. You just got to find a way to get yourself fired. That's all that matters. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. Because I always you always bring in knowledge. Because, dude, you're not a quitter. You're not a quitter. Rehab is for quitters. Yeah, I know you're not a quitter. But, you know, (laughs) but getting fired is different. Well, that's right. I mean, there's almost honor in being fired, right? Absolutely. Quitters, I mean, there's no honor. Losers. Quitting on principle, that's bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, you got to get fired. That's right. Uh-huh, okay. <laughs> well, things are looking up for me now suddenly. <laughs> Feeling much better about <laughs> my week. <laughs> this is a good segue, actually, because really what we're getting at is mental health. Right. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> we're getting at mental health. Yeah, but whose mental health? Your kids or yours? I think it's yours. Well, it's really, the, I can only control my own mental health. I can't control That's their right. mental health. I mean, yeah. as much as I would like to help them be happy. Sometimes they're just pissed off and I can't seem to do anything about it. Yeah. But for me, yeah, I can do what I can do to self soothe. <laughs> you know, whatever they call it. As you're, as you're wearing your Guinness hat. As I'm wearing my Guinness hat here. I haven't had a Guinness. Is that, a, is that appropriate attire for a teacher to show up in a Guinness hat? Well, it is at homeschool. <laughs> you know. Oh, oh homeschooling, you know, the rules are, uh, they're smoking in the bathroom, by the way. There's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the rules are much more lenient. We do encourage all kinds of bad behavior. But to, to, today's guest is great, given the subject of mental health. Of course. Our listeners probably will recall that we were planning to have our conference, or not real our yeah. conference, in March. And due to the corona virus, aka COVID-19, we did the right thing and uh, canceled the conference. And of course, we did it before we were mandated because we saw this shit coming. Yeah. That was a great call, by the way. I got to give you a touch on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a stressful one, but it was the right one. So, but one of the speakers that we had lined up for the conference was a gentleman by the name of Brett Hofstein, who's a licensed and published psychotherapist who works with artists in LA. And, you know, interestingly, at the time before the pandemic, the rationale behind the panel that we were going to have with him was this idea of like, you know, these are stressful times. How can we manage our stress and how can we be creative? when we're stressed? What are the the tools and the techniques and the things that we can be doing to take care of ourselves and our mental health? And uh, even if we don't have money, what are the free resources? What are the things we can do at home? What about self-medication? I mean, people are smoking a lot more medicinal marijuana now to deal with stress and things. So Brett Hofstein was going to come and talk. And so as a run-up to his talk at the conference, we had him on the podcast And so I sat down with Brett uh, a few weeks ago and recorded this interview that we're going to share. So, you know, I thought we'd just do that today. In terms of his bio, I'll just read here what I have. So Brett Hofstein is a licensed and published psychotherapist working in Los Angeles. He specializes in depression, anxiety, borderline personality disorders. Brett incorporates the use of EMDR and psychodynamic relationship-based modalities. Don't ask me what that means (laughs) in in his private practice while focusing on adults, couples, and workplace dynamics. 
before becoming a therapist 14 years ago, Brett worked in Hollywood for Scott Rudin and Roger Corman. But over the last several years as a therapist, he's been helping artists and musicians and filmmakers and writers deal with their mental health and helping them manage stress. Brett completed his undergrad degree at San Francisco State University in 94 and got his graduate degree in clinical psychology at Antioch in 2004. So people can check him out at brethofstein.com for more information. Certainly if anybody's looking for some help, he's a great guy. But without further ado, I say let's get into this interview. Sourdough and Brett Hofstein talking mental health. Do it. Brett Hofstein, welcome to Not Real Art. I am happy to be here. Thank you for having Great me. Great to have you, my friend. Thank you, man. Good to see you. I understand you're a licensed psycho. I am a li- I've been a licensed psycho for almost 12 years now. Um, and what I mean by psycho and what I think you're referencing <laughs> is me being a psychotherapist yes, in Los Angeles. Sir. Oh, it was a typo. Oh, oh yeah, it's missing yeah, a... Yes. Got it. Okay. I had to work through the uh, psycho part in my, <laughs> in my own therapy. Throughout Isn't my that life. the joke among therapists? Like we're really just you know well-adjusted psychos. Yeah, <laughs> essentially. You know, Carl Jung, the great yes. Swiss psychologist and theorist, said that we're all anybody in the healing game is a wounded healer, mm. meaning that something obviously, perhaps traumatic, happened to them yeah. when they were younger, and that made them feel that they could go ahead and help others because they understood the topography of mental anguish and pain. Was that your journey? Did something traumatic happen to you? That's a really good question. I mean, there's small T trauma and large capital T trauma. Mm-hmm. Someone who gets hit by a car, that might be for them a small T trauma. For some, maybe not so much for me. I think probably just a, a cascade of small traumas along the way, you know? I mean, the product of divorce, nine, 10 years old, the shuffling back and forth between mom and dad's house, which was very, very difficult and very, very painful for me, leaving one parent and going to another parent. I think I'm a therapist because of what happened to me in my in my childhood. And I'm also, you know, only child and I had to go ahead and do a lot of my own self-soothing. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of that. Well, you're Gen X, right? We're both Gen X. Gen X, yeah. baby. So would you, is it safe to say that Gen X is sort of the generation of divorce? Like, was divorce a prominent thing prior to Gen X? That's a great question. I don't even know what the what the math would be on that. I wondered about that. I don't that. know about the you stats know, I remember that. I remember vividly, right? You're walking to school with my buddy Larry in sixth grade. And we're walking to school in the morning and he's like clearly upset. And I was like, what's going on? You know, what's wrong? And he tells me his parents are getting divorced. And I remember not knowing what to say. I had no words. I couldn't even imagine what that kind of- What how old were you? I was, well, I was in sixth grade. So, what were you, 12? 12? 11 yeah, or 12? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean, just obviously we have so many friends growing up, right, who got divorced or whatever the case, their parents got divorced. And I just, it just got me wondering because I'm Gen X as well. I mean, was our generation the first generation to kind of really deal with divorce? I think it's a great question. It's very possible that our, that our generation maybe did have to deal with more divorce than, than others. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was more permissible, maybe not as stigmatized as maybe it would have been maybe in the early 70s or 60s, mm-hmm. maybe. Who knows? Yeah. You know, I think it's a really interesting, it's an interesting question. I, I keep thinking about like, you know, the middle 70s and leading into the into the 80s about 
drug culture. I mean, yeah. back, you know, I'm thinking about like Studio 54 and, yeah. and what was going on then and people like maybe playing outside the house more. I don't know. Maybe it was more permissible. Key parties and then you start to go ahead and get introduced to other people in your life. Like, well, you know what? My husband or my wife, my wife's not making me happy anymore and yeah. Mrs. Robinson down the block. Well, she's getting divorced, it sounds like. So maybe you might be right. Yeah, I don't know. It's just fascinating. But yeah, we all have our junk, our stuff, right? And it's so fascinating to hear about people's journeys because obviously everything is so personal. But you know, you and I happen to go back. We've known each other for a while. And I so appreciate you coming on the show, by the way. By the way, I'm super grateful that you're coming to our conference. Can't wait. On March 21st. Can't wait. Thank you. And, yeah, uh, you know, you and this, our little chat today is a kind of a primer to our chat at the conference because these are such stressful times. And I mean, life is stressful. I, you know, I'm not one of these folks that acts like this time in history is the most stressful time in history because that's bullshit. It's not. Stress is always, in many ways, life is better today empirically than life's ever been in history. That doesn't mean to say that there aren't major problems that still need to be addressed. Of course, human nature is fucked up, <laughs> you yeah. know, in a lot of, but anyway, artists being an artist, it's hard to be creative. It's hard to create when you're under stress. And our panel, your panel, when you come to the conference, we're calling it Relax and Create, How to Manage Your Stress and Increase Your Productivity. But I don't care if you're an artist or if you're a professional of any kind, stress is going to impact your performance. And I mean, you must see this in your practice all the time with your clients, right? Like, how are people yeah. dealing with stress these days? In a lot of different ways. You know, I do see a lot of people in the industry. I see a lot of executives um, on all levels. I see writers and directors and actors and all of that. And they all, a lot of them fortunately can go ahead and afford to come see me. So mm -hmm. there's a great outlet that they can come see me once a week or mm -hmm. once every other week or twice a week, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. so they what can do go you ahead. charge an hour? You don't mind me asking. A million dollars. <laughs> I, um, my initial rate's 250. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Now but we're in LA just for our listeners sort of benefit. We're in Los Angeles. It must be a very competitive space as a therapist, right? I mean, yes. there's a lot of therapists here. Yes. You've built your practice over many years. How many years have you been? 12 years licensed. I've been practicing for 14 or 15 years, right. but I've been licensed for 12. Right. So, I mean, you didn't start out at 225 an hour. You no, know, I started off when I was a beginning therapist. I just gotten licensed. I just wanted to work. Yeah. I would charge $40 a session. Right. Yeah. If you could pay more than that, great. Yeah. But I was just, I just wanted to get those hours in. Right, 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 yeah, yeah. right, right. Yeah. So, so my, right. yeah, my rate's 250, 225. Yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah. know, I do slide if necessary. Right. So, but I mean, I, to be fair though, I'm sure you're probably, it strikes me based on what I do understand because I have a therapist and we go to therapy and, you know, therapy has been a part of my life. That feels like a pretty average price. Like you're not on the high end, you're not on the low end. It feels like you're kind of in the middle. Yeah. I think there are some therapists out there charging upwards of 300. I don't okay. think that you can get much more than that. In New York, they charge a lot more because yeah. of how much it costs to live in New York. Right, right, right. But right. Uh, yeah, I think I'm, you know, I'm pretty much the average right now. Are these kinds of things covered by insurance? Do people some insurance, have insurance for you? Yeah, some insurance policies, yeah. depending upon what you have, will go ahead and cover anywhere from 30 to 70%. Mm -hmm, just, mm -hmm. just depends on what your yeah. insurance uh, coverage is. Right, 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 right. So your clients, right, who work in the entertainment business, many of your clients work in the entertainment business, business writers, actors, producers, directors. How is today's geopolitical situation, environmental situation, socioeconomical situation, how are you seeing these sort of systemic macro environmental factors impacting people's mental health? Depends on where they are on the totem pole of their industry. Okay. Right. The, hi the higher up they are, mm -hmm. obviously a lot of pressure 
a lot of weight to hold up there, mm -hmm. right? They seem to be faring better because they've put in the, the work. They've been lucky in getting to where they are. Mm -hmm. Those that are still fledgling in some ways in their new pursuit, it's harder. You know, I see a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress, a lot of worry among screenwriters, new screenwriters, directors, actors. The competition has been fierce mm. in this industry for, you know, 30, 40 years. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's a lot of competition. And a lot of the actors, a lot of the artists that I see get frustrated by having to play the game. Yeah. Right? And I talk often about this in therapy that you can hate the players. Yeah. Don't hate the game. Right. If you hate the game. If you're opting in to play the game, right, you've opted in. Like you can't. The game is the game. The game is the game. When I first started off as a therapist, right, I had to learn how to play the game. I think any, you know, I think that all of us are peddling a product. Yeah. Every one of us, you, me, anybody, everybody is peddling a product. There's rent to pay. We got to make money. Right. So we're all selling something, mm -hmm. right? And so I said to a lot of my clients, you are your own walking billboard, Yeah. right? So you've got to sell, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of the newer actors or, or directors, they kind of resent maybe some of the nepotism that can sometimes get in the way, right? right? Yeah. Be frustrated by it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Don't resent it. Yeah. Right? Because the resentment, I think, was just going to go ahead and just really kill any sort of momentum. It's going to derail. You can be frustrated by it, but how badly do you want it? Yeah. First of all, right. right? I remember when I became a therapist, when I was working, you know, I was going to grad school and I had a vision of what I wanted my therapy life to look like. It was in an office, talking with someone like yourself, one-on-one. -on -one. I didn't want to go any other route, and that was the vision. It was a singular focus, mm -hmm. and I wasn't going to let anything derail me from that. Yeah. Obviously, my pursuit it has been easier, mm -hmm. right? Because it's a lot more structured. You do the classes, and you do the hours, and you do this, and you do that. You know you're on the right path with acting or with directing or with writing or with painting or with sculpting. You can put out the product, yeah. right? But it's so hard to get anybody to read it, to buy it, yeah. to see it, right? There are all of these variables that a lot of artists, I think, inevitably do get frustrated by because it's so much easier actually to write the script, direct the short film, do the painting, whatever it is, make the music. But getting it out there to the masses is so hard and that's what happens to a lot of these artists is that they, their dreams get killed because they can't get that stuff seen or read or heard. Well, and by the way, what I appreciate about what you're saying is what you're talking about doesn't come from some theory or some book you read. I mean, you actually have lived it because being a therapist is, as I understand it, like your third career, right? At one time, you were a professional writer. Yeah. I mean, professional. not I didn't striving, get, striving. Aspiring. I mean, yeah. I mean, I have the empirical knowledge, which allows me to, I think, mm -hmm. engender myself to my clients Yeah, because I've been there. I, Real life experience. That's, that's the phrase I was trying to look for yeah. a minute ago. Like you came into being a therapist with real life experience. Because how old were you when you became licensed? I was 38. Okay, 38, right? Kind of midlife, so to speak. Whoa. Right? Whoa. We're on the low end. Holy smokes. <laughs> That's a bit terrifying. Uh, newsflash. Shit. Newsflash. You've got 26 but you years had, left. But you had lived a lot of life. You had, you know, you had worked in Hollywood. I think you even worked in finance for a while. And then you decide, you know what, I want to help people and you go into therapy. And so what I'm guessing is that the real, your real life experience in these other industries mm. has helped you be a better therapist. A thousand percent. 
you know, when I, I was 25, 26, I moved, I'd gone to college in San Francisco, stayed up there for a little while. And then I, I wanted to get into the industry mm-hmm. and I moved back down to LA. I'm from LA. I moved back down here in, when I was 26. I got a job working for free for Roger Corman, mm-hmm. the, uh, the famous B movie maker, movie director who, yeah. you know, he was the mentor to Ron Howard and Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola. And I remember just walking into his film production company completely cold and I introduced myself and they said, okay, here's a script, read it and tell, you what, tell us what you think. So I did that for a little while. I read some scripts and told them what I thought. And then I, I wanted to get on the production end of it. Yeah. And I worked as a PA for free again, mm-hmm. which I do advocate to people that, that are, are in the industry. If you want to go ahead and be behind the scenes, if you want to be a gaffer or a grip or a PA, the industry loves free labor. If you want to get in there, work for free, pay your dues. Then, you know, I was a Roger Corman for a little while. I, I, I was a production assistant, then an assistant, a, a second, second AD, and then a second AD. And then I got offered a, a job at working at Paramount for Scott Rudin, a famous producer of, of many, many movies, um, Ransom, and, and now does a lot of the Wes Anderson movies. I was there for maybe six to eight months and realized I needed to get out of here mm. because it was very cutthroat. I didn't like a lot of the players. Yeah. It was rubbing me all the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, I was fortunate enough then to go ahead and work with my dad for a little mm-hmm. while in stocks during the uh, late 90s. And then had an epiphany in my own therapy mm-hmm. uh, where a therapist said to me, you'd be a great therapist. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my, yeah, that's what I want to do the rest Clarity. of my life. It was so powerful. I literally... I think I cried for like three days in a while. I was so emotionally overcome by the idea that, wow, I can do this for the next 40, 50 years. I can be a therapist. And then that began, and then here we are, you know, uh, uh, 16 years Was there a a feeling of, because I'm guessing you were so moved in part because, you know, you had a kind of a vision. There was clarity. There was, and yet at the same time, I'm guessing on the flip side of that, there was this kind of weight of responsibility. It's like, oh shit, I have to do this, right? You know, it wasn't necessarily a wave of responsibility. Oh, a I was Sorry, not a, a weight, wave, a weight yeah, of yeah. responsibility. I, I was fortunate yeah. because I could make that move, that transition. Yeah. yeah. I had done fairly okay in, in the stock market, mm-hmm. you know, with my dad and going back to grad school. I was lucky that, you know, I could still trade stocks yeah. while going to school mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I could still really put it 110% into my school, which was needed at mm-hmm, that time. Mm-hmm. So I was lucky. I was more excited than anything else yeah. about this. Motivated. Movie. Yeah. You know what it was? It, it was about, and I think this is important, it was about identity. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, you know, they go, who am I? What do yeah. I, who am I a father? Am I a mother? Or right. Am I a banker? Am I a lawyer? For me, it's like, you know, I didn't have any kids. My girlfriend at the time, now my wife. You know, we're living together. I was a stock trader, but my life was all about making money, which I hated. It didn't have a lot of soul attached to it. Mm. So for me, it's like be saying that I was a therapist. Yeah, I guess you could say there was a bit of ego attached to that, but it really resonated with me, the identity of being a therapist. Yeah. Some might call it God's work, right? Firefighters, teachers, uh, therapists, physicians, doctors, obviously, you know, yeah. the people on the front line of well-being. This is important work. Yeah, circling back to what you're talking about, like even with the people that I work with and what do they do during these tumultuous or difficult times with, you know, we have an election coming up. Interesting enough, I don't have a lot of Trumpers in my office, which is interesting. Mm. I have a lot more of the people who want him out. There is the concern for Mm. them of 
four more years, right? And what that might look like, mm. right? So we'd tackle that anxiety, yeah, right, yeah. But hey, man, I'm a big advocate of exercise, sleep, and nutrition. Yeah. If you can't afford therapy, right? You can't afford my rate, or you can't afford any rate. What are the things that you can do to go ahead and self soothe, right? To relax, yeah. to get centered, to get to to refuel, to get grounded. Exercise. Go for a walk. Go right. for a thirty-minute walk every single day. That you'll see the benefits of that. Yeah. Right. Try to eat as, as clean as you can. Mm-hmm. Try to get enough water. Get enough sleep. And also, maybe relationships are also so important. Yeah. They talk about this. This perhaps looming epidemic of loneliness that people are more lonely than ever. Right. Right. There was an article in the Atlantic Monthly maybe five, six, seven years ago, title cover of Facebook is making us more lonely. Yeah. Which social media is doing. We're ironically more disconnected yeah. than we are connected yeah. because of social media. Yeah. Right? Somebody said uh, social media makes those farther apart closer together and, and those close together farther apart. Completely. Right. Yes. I don't myself tend to do too much of the social media. Yeah. I try to unplug as much as possible. Yeah. I would recommend that. You know, I daily will leave my office, leave my phone and go for a walk in my in my work neighborhood for 15 minutes or a half an hour. Sure. Nobody could find me. The NSA can't find me. <laughs> FBI can't yes, find they can. me. Sorry, I do you know. Do you think the NSA do you think that if I actually was I guess they could. Even if my phone was in my office, the NSA could probably find me in about 5 minutes. <laughs> Even without any gear on me. But I do recommend that people unplug. You weren't aware of that chip that they planted, you know. Probably. Yeah, you were were out. No, but uh, joking aside, I mean, that's we have to take responsibility, right, for our peace of mind, for our happiness. And it feels like it's so easy, right, to blame others or take, you know, pass the buck or whatever. But if there's such power, right, in owning your reality and trying to take ownership of your own happiness and well-being and peace of mind. And that walk, a simple walk out of doors is like a metaphorical splash of cold water on the face, right? Mm. I mean, it's just like you're rebooting, you're sort of refreshing in those moments. You're taking care of you in that moment. You're in that, what do I think like leaving your phone at home or in the office, wherever it is, just to go out and just, I know that, you know, we want to go ahead and stay connected to our families in case of emergencies and blah, blah, blah. I think if you can go ahead and allow yourself and give yourself permission to be untethered, to have the hooks out of you with your phone and just go ahead and just be you. Yeah. Right? Just be sourdough for a moment. I can't just, help myself, right? but be sourdough. Right? Is that you, you know, you've got a lot of hooks in you, a lot of mm. people who are attached to you. You've got a lot of responsibilities. Mm. And if you could just go ahead and just be Scott, sourdough yeah, yeah. for 15 minutes yeah. is quite refueling. I feel like we tend, it's so tempting and so easy to overcomplicate things. And some things are very complicated. The idea of going to get psychological help for mental wellness or what have you, I mean, that sounds kind of feels kind of daunting and might feel expensive, but this idea of a walk in the you know I love that. I tend to think of I try, of course, you know this is years of trial and error, I guess, coming to bear. But eventually, I got to one point in my own life where I'm trying to identify core drivers. So it's like, oh, this is symptomatic of something bigger. Mm. So, for example, you mentioned the phone. I realized I was one of the early adopters, I think, on Facebook. And then at some point along the way, I realized this is actually kind of driving me crazy. Hmm. And I just checked out for a while. And that was even before other people that I knew started getting on. 
but I'll see that. I'll recognize that. Like, oh, streaming through my Instagram is actually making me really unhappy mm. right now. Yeah. Maybe I well, should just not look at my Instagram for it's, a week. It's, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, admittedly, actually, I took Instagram off my phone because I didn't like that I would maybe go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. And they talk about with any of these social media things about it. There's a dopamine dump. Sure. Right. You get you get a hit of dopamine when you get a text message or an email or or a like on a Ooh, Facebook. Somebody loves me. Somebody loves me, that constant validation. Yeah. And then it becomes a drug, right? right? You're chasing it, right? You're chasing, I need more, I more yep. and more. And for you though, you didn't you started to feel not good about yourself physically or mentally when you take that well it, it just sort of depends you know if i'm streaming through I, i've noticed a few things so over the years so if i'm happy if i happen to be looking at a lot of artists profiles i start feeling like i'm not that creative i'm not that talented i'm not that you know if i'm looking at a lot of instagram accounts that happen to be travel related I start feeling like, oh my God, I'm not seeing the world. I'm not going out. I'm not, if I happen to be looking at profiles of people who are particularly fit or athletic or whatever, I start feeling really fat and out of shape. Like it is amazing how that yes. happens, but it's like clockwork. Yeah. I recommend anybody that has depression on my roster, stay away from these things because yeah. they're not going to be helpful because you're going to be tempted to compare yourself. Right. Like, oh, these people are having much better lives than I am. Well, so this is <laughs> this is probably a bit uh, ironic or contradictory that I'm going to plug a Instagram account right now. <laughs> but this is exactly why. Oh, I'll put it back on my phone now. Then. Right, right. Uh, w- one of my favorite Instagram accounts right now is one called Influencers in the Wild, which it's, you know, because influencers, right, are so uh, people envy them because they're curating and and directing these very sort of idyllic images, which of course are bullshit yeah. largely. And so anyway, this Instagram account that I'm getting a lot of joy out of these days is sort of like influencers in the wild. So, you know, just shit going wrong. So somebody trying to shoot the perfect photo and then of course they fall over or somebody says something, you know, inappropriate. It's the, it's the jackass approach. To, it's the, uh, it's the candy camera, yep. you know, jackass approach. But anyway, yeah, man. I mean, you know, like I try to think about these core drivers, like what's stressing us out. And I feel like we live in LA, so traffic, for example, is a big one, right? So, but yet there's no way around it, right? I mean, you have to drive somewhere. So, what can we do while we're in the car? What can we do while we're driving to help mitigate the stress and mitigate the, you know, yeah, I think driving is interesting. interesting. I certainly can get frustrated with the traffic in Los Angeles. I'm born and raised in LA. It's certainly gotten a lot worse. I try to now when I'm driving and I'm in traffic, it's like I rather than get frustrated. I have to go ahead and somewhat surrender to mm, it. Yeah. It's kind of like, I don't have any choice right now. No yeah. one's going to pluck me right. from the sky right. and put me closer to where I need to be. I'm here. Right. There's nothing I can do. I could stop and get in my car and go, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. And I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go walking. back home yeah. or I'm walking. Yeah. But you have to go ahead and just surrender right. to it. Right. Well, I, I, I want to circle back to something you said sure. though, yeah, about yeah, responsibility. Yeah. You know, Irvin Yalom, he's a great psychoanalyst. He's a existential psychotherapist, and he's written a lot of really good books about existential therapy, existential psychotherapy, and taking responsibility. Yeah. Right? It's so important for people to take responsibility for their part, Mm. right? Mm. Each one of us is responsible for any sort of dysfunction in our lives. Someone who's being abused in a relationship 
by some horrible partner, it could be a 95-5 split. That right, that your responsibility of being in that bad relationship is is five percent. Take responsibility then for that. Yep. Right. So I think responsibility is so important for people to go ahead and take stock of their side of the street. Is my side of the street clean? Or can I make it cleaner? What kind of work do I need to do to go ahead and make it a bit cleaner? Yeah. What is that about? Why are we so is it just human nature that we find it so hard to accept responsibility for our livelihood and for our well-being? I think there's a vulnerability component to it is I think that, say, for instance, I had gotten to you today 15 or 20 minutes late. Mm. Oh, Scott, traffic, man. It was just, it was so bad. Yeah. And oh, these drivers in LA versus maybe I should have left a little earlier. Maybe I didn't do what I need to do. Mm. I'm so sorry, by the way, that I'm keeping you waiting. Mm. Me mm. apologizing to you is I'm now being vulnerable. I made perhaps a mistake. I made an error versus can I blame someone else for this? Who else can I blame? Because I don't want to go ahead and, ahead and look you know, weak or look incompetent. Yeah. Who else can I blame? Yeah. But when you go ahead and you say, Dude, I'm so sorry for for being late. Mm. It neutralizes, I think, in the moment yeah. what's happened. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yes. Unless you continue to repeat the offense. Right. Then right, that right. gets old. If I right. show up every single day to you late, mm. oh, dude, I'm so sorry. Mm. Day three or four of that, right. you're gonna be like, dude, your sorry's now are a bit empty. Yeah, yeah. You gotta yeah, yeah. change the behavior and change yeah, yeah, the yeah. habit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You've hit on a couple things that I think are powerful, and that is obviously accepting responsibility being your main point. But you know, earlier you said something about traffic and surrendering, yeah. like having realistic expectations about what is or isn't in your control, mm -hmm. right? Being able to recognize that and just kind of, I don't know if this is the right word or not, compartmentalize and just say like, Listen, I can't control this. I think that's a really good point. You you know, using like even using the parallels of somebody that puts hours and hours and hours into their acting career and they're not getting, you know, the auditions or the roles versus somebody sitting in traffic. Both of these things are the, you are at the mercy of all these other people in front of you in many ways, right? For an mm -hmm. actor, you're at the mercy of a casting director, a producer, an act, another actor, a director. So, if you're doing the best that you can, right? And that's all you can say. It's like, I can go ahead and pat myself on the back that, hey, I'm still pursuing what I need to pursue and I can only do what I can do. Because if you become frustrated by the, quote, traffic, you're eventually never going to leave the home. <laughs> right, right. Right? And then where are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. You have to go ahead and admit and accept that there is traffic and yeah. there are barriers to entry and you've got to go ahead and navigate it because what other choice do you have? Well, I feel like, you know, we all have our strategies, right? We all have our ways of coping. I tend to think about the environment that I'm in, right? And what in that environment is in or out of my control. So for example, when I'm driving, right? Like, and I, this comes and goes, but like, there have been many times over the years here in LA where I realized that for some reason driving was stressing me out. It was especially bad or I don't you know what it was, but what I then thought of it was like, okay, well, Here's my environment. I'm stuck on the 101 <laughs> or whatever. And I'm in my car, but I also have my music up really loud. Maybe the music itself on some level is adding to the stress level because the BPMs are too high or the guitar has got too much distortion or whatever the case might be. And I said, you know, what? I wonder what would happen if I turn the music off and I turn it off. 
and it was quiet in the car. And and suddenly I started to sense that my stress level came down a little bit. Like I I took control of what I could control in that right. environment and I turned off. And so there was time, there have been times in LA where I would make it a rule. I'm not turning on any sound in my car while I'm driving. And I would go for a week or two and not do that. And suddenly driving is just more enjoyable. Oh yeah. I've, you know, I'll, I'll have like an eight or nine client day and I'll get in my car and drive home for 20 minutes. And I will sometimes drive home in just with nothing on. So, okay. I got to ask you though, because, okay, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt, but you just said something, you sort of glossed over something that I think is really powerful, right? You said eight or nine clients. Okay. Now, everybody listening to this podcast has probably clients and they are, it's the blessing and the curse of clients, right? Like whether it's, whether you're a psychotherapist or whether you're an artist or what have you, some clients are great. Many clients are mediocre and then the some are just nightmares, right? We all wish, we all love what we do if it weren't for the clients, right? (laughs) It's the point, right? And managing your stress around a client is part of the challenge, right? And you as a psychotherapist, are seeing clients, I'm guessing, that are across a spectrum of anxiety, everything from like, oh my God, I don't know what to do with my life to, oh my God, I'm suicidal and everything in between. Like, how do you, what techniques, what strategies do you as a therapist apply to managing those clients? And so when you drive home, you're not freaking out about all of that stuff they're putting on you. How do you protect yourself? It's a good question. It's a great question. When I first started about maybe, let's see, I'm licensed 12 years, so pre-license 14 years ago. So about 14 years ago, I was working on my hours as a new fledgling therapist, learning the ropes. Now, when you say work on your hours, you mean to get your- to get, Yeah. yeah to so get how my, many hours do you have to 3, get? 3,000 hours. Wow. Okay. You have to go ahead and yeah. uh, amass yeah. before you can go ahead and then sit down for the test and all okay. of that. Okay. So I remember one day I had this one client that was- really challenging for me. Mm. He pushed my buttons Mm. a lot. I was able to go ahead through my own therapy, figure out why this guy was pushing my buttons. He reminded me of perhaps, you know, my childhood, blah, blah, blah. But one day, um, my girlfriend at the time, now wife, Sharon, came- Shout out Sharon. Hi, Sharon. She came home and I lost it. I just, I could not stop crying. This Mm. client was just to the solar plexus, to the emotional solar plexus, right. right? And so over the next- couple of years, I developed what they call a therapist's second skin, mm. where you get, you know, calloused in some ways, right? Sure. So that you can go ahead and you, you're more seasoned, right? And so you can go ahead and take those blows, those hits, and they don't hurt as much. So now, you know, say 12 years removed from or 14 years removed from that event, and, you know, I'm able to, thankfully, depending upon the client situation, I am able to go ahead and and, and, and take the blows mm-hmm. where it doesn't rattle me or shake me as yeah. much, Yeah. right? I sometimes will have a client, I've had suicidal clients, a lot of them, and certainly I can't take that lightly. I don't, and they do affect me. I am worried about them, mm-hmm. but I try not to let, I try not to take this stuff home, sometimes impossible. Mm-hmm. But you know, one technique that I do every after every session, so my sessions are typically 45 to 50 minutes, you know, the client will leave, I will write down my notes, and then I'll have about five or six minutes before my next client comes into the office. I'm lucky that I have a, a nice window and I will stare out at the city mm, yeah. and I will just listen to the buzzing. I will just go ahead and just zone out for a moment and then just get centered. I do it every single session without fail. Mm-hmm. I will look out the window mm-hmm. and it's my it's my way of of getting centered 
And, you know, there are other therapists that might sage their space or spritz some scent or mm -hmm. do something. So and I kind of cleanse it to cleanse it, clients, to you know. smudge it. And I'm also, I'm, I'm so ritualistic that there are things that I do. Even at the end of the day, I will, I will do this ritual where I'll leave my office and I will um, pat myself, my right hand on my heart, mm -hmm. and I will thank my office for the service it's done for the day. Yeah, right. right? I'll say thank you, and I'll see you tomorrow. Sure. sure. And I, then I, I do this gesture with both hands. Well, it's uh, kind of a sacred space, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it is. I totally get that. Yeah. I can't imagine. I mean, the kind of... Because we all bring our work home. I mean, like, it's so natural, right, to bring your work home with you. If you care about what you do, if you take yep. it seriously, if you're a professional, if you're at a certain level... And yet at the same time, you owe it to yourself, you owe it to your family, you owe it to your clients, you owe it to any number of things that to have those boundaries and protect certain time, certain space to to not think about work. And, you know, I'm wondering to what extent the techniques and the tools that you use as a therapist, I wonder to what extent those techniques and tools are similar or different than, say, physicians who are literally trying to stop the bleeding someone comes in you know their life is on the line right there are those of us who don't deal with another person's well-being may have a hard time understanding what it's like to manage that stress because it is really a matter of life or death i remember working in you know i've worked in marketing services my whole career with a focus on consumer products marketing and advertising and design and clients would get so upset about something and rightfully so they're spending a ton of money and they want it to be right and so it's you, had, be you right. had to do some hand-holding well course. just hand-holding but but it's sort of like wait a minute why are you this is this is fucking sugar water it's a carbonated soft drink we're not fighting fires and saving lives let's keep this into in perspective people you know, and I think that's a big part of the reason why I got out of that business because one of my pet peeves in life is people who take themselves too damn seriously. Is some people get that right? You know, it's so and interesting about how you you're kind of I, I get what you're saying about you know it's like why are you getting you know all upset about the sugar water that you're that you're peddling? I get there's a lot of actors who sometimes like ask themselves, what am I doing? I'm selling being an actor. How's that being helpful at all? And I will tell them, you know what, man, if you can for a moment give someone a break. Yeah. And make them feel better or okay or distracted That's for valuable. five minutes. Yeah. That sugar water, yeah. by the way, for that person who took a sip of that sugar water, yeah. made them feel good mm -hmm. because you know the tasty neurotransmitters were making them feel good. Then, mm -hmm. then so be it. You know, mm -hmm. right at the end of the day, I think that we all kind of want to have moments of feeling okay and good so be yeah. it sugar water or whatever whatever gets you through yeah yeah yeah. you know because i think i was thinking about what do people use to and i've even said this to you which i have to maybe rephrase that you know I, i've said that you know we're all addicted to something mm. and that's not a new phrase it's not something i've coined and there are a lot of uh, addiction specialists out there who take umbrage with that idea mm. because you're minimizing that there are actually severe addicts out there yeah Right. So instead of saying, you know, we're all addicted to something, I now say we all lean on something. Yeah, we all have a crutch. We all have a crutch and we should. Yeah. Right. We're the only species I think that knows we're going to die. Right. Right. So we have our own mortality issues that we have to confront. And so we have to learn how to go ahead and distract ourselves and mm. get through it. And if that is with, you know, exercise or relationships or caffeine, it's like as long as it's somewhat functional and not dysfunctional. Yeah. Well, and that's sort of an interesting segue into something I want to talk about 
at the conference when we do our panel there, a lot of folks are self-medicating, especially now in California with the legalization of marijuana, which I, I don't know if it's still called medical marijuana. At one point it was you know, medicinal. Now it's recreational. I'm guessing there are plenty of folks out there smoking weed to relax, to distress, but how much is too much? What's the healthy balance to strike? You know? Yeah. I, I mean, I have a lot of clients that do rely on the weed product, you know, CBD or, mm -hmm. or the actual weed itself. And I mean, I think the definition in the DSM of, which is the diagnostical mm -hmm. psychological that we therapists use to diagnose people, if it is affecting your personal life yeah. or your professional life, then you probably have a problem. Mm -hmm. But if it's not, if you're using it recreationally and it's just like, you know what, at the end of the day, you know, instead of coming home and having a gin and tonic, you've got to take a couple of hits off the whatever and, and it chills you out. Mm -hmm. I don't see it as a, as a problem, you know, but I do have mostly, it's interesting, a lot more men that I see smoke the weed more than women. Sure. They do complain to me at times that their significant others don't like it when they do smoke. Yeah. Which I totally understand, right? It's kind of like if I went home and had a glass of wine with dinner and you know my wife was not drinking, it's kind of like you want to have maybe that shared experience. Mm -hmm. You want to be on that same level plane, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. a lot of- Yeah, right. Right? But if you're smoking the weed and right. your partner's not you're smoking impaired. the weed- You're impaired. You're impaired. There's something about you that is- That's why you smoke the weed to begin with, to, yeah. some, to somehow unplug, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the CBD, you know, everyone's using, a lot of people are using CBD right now, right? I get which is what they've eliminated as much of the THC as they can mm. to uh, not have that psychotropic effect. You know, I, I haven't read too much about CBD. Mm. I know a little bit about it, mm. you know, and, and if it's a pain ointment, so to speak, that you're using due mm -hmm. to mental pain or physical pain, so be it. Have at it. Yeah. You know, I'm an advocate for it. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. You know, as long as it's not crippling or derailing you know, you professionally or, or personally. Well, right. And it's, again, I think everything in moderation and, you know, arguably a natural plant, although there's some debate to be had as to just how natural some of these super engineered <laughs> flowers yeah. are, but something that grows out of the earth, just generally for me, just, you know, not being an expert here, but just, I'm just going to be more open to something that's natural versus something that's artificial alcohol being a good example yeah. of something that's arguably made more dangerous or less healthy than you know the interesting thing about yeah. alcohol is I, I think that the the generations below us below gen x i've read things that studies now that they're drinking less smoking more using cbd more yeah. and drinking less alcohol yeah you know that that's actually even more socially acceptable right is that they're you know taking a little cbd ointment mm -hmm. or whatever mm -hmm. sublingual or you know smoking a little bit instead of drinking yeah 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 have you ever had clients come in high or drunk yeah absolutely, really? absolutely high drunk probably and i maybe i've yeah over the last yeah of course i mean over the last like 14 years i've actually had i've had some come in drunk and nothing good happens yeah but know. i mean so how does that i mean does that do they tell you they're drunk or high or do i can you just sort of ask tell, them you well, sense some it? some of these some now they're smoking so much weed i mean it unfortunately is just how they they go about their days now yeah you know i have a lot of a public couple of people actually in the weed business themselves peddling the product right so they're around it 24 7. so they're in they the business you have a couple the, clients in the business yeah they live with it yeah you right. know and they're always on it yeah. it's just so readily available right could you imagine if you were working at the doritos factory probably have ah! i'd have doritos bags all <laughs> yes, over the place that's right. dipping into the cool you have orange uh, lips and fingers yes, and yeah. god yeah that's really that's funny 
So yeah, I mean, I did. They do come in high at times, and I'll ask them. I'll ask them if they've smoked. I don't know how honest they are. Some I have yeah. one person who said, "Yeah, I did smoke today." Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. that person is fairly lucid. Mm-hmm. Um, he's able to connect, mm-hmm. and it now just becomes the new normal for them. Yeah, that's so interesting. I have been to therapy, my own therapy, a couple times over the years. Say like. I've been at a bar. I've had a couple of drinks, meeting a friend or something. It's like, oh, I got to go. I got to get to my therapy session. And I've just realized like I felt like I wasted my money in therapy. Hmm. Right. Because of those those couple of drinks, just I couldn't connect. I was altered. You know, right. and at least for me with therapy, it's like I lost my religion a long time ago. And so like therapy for me is sort of my church in some hmm. ways. It's like it's a very sacred thing. Like I, I take it pretty seriously. And so I just realized I'm not really getting the most out of it if I go in there somewhat altered. Like and your being- therapist then would going to go ahead and, and ask you, wonder with you if you unconsciously sabotaged the therapy that day, knowing you were going to therapy, yeah. you'd have a couple of drinks beforehand, right? right? Or I was just multitasking. <laughs> or you're just multitasking. Or I'm just an alcoholic. <laughs> yeah. No, but it, it's it's my own – but I self-corrected, right? You know what's really interesting about mm. you talking about, you know, coming – like having a wasted opportunity um, with therapy, coming in a bit altered. It makes me think about when I was in therapy and I've been in and out of therapy since I'm 19 years old. I would often go in dressed like I am today. Mm-hmm. So like In I'm a tuxedo? Wear- <laughs> In a tuxedo. Well, you know, I'm wearing a pair of, you know, skater vans and a plaid shirt and some jeans. Yes. And I would go in wearing, and maybe I'd wear like, a, you know, a Dodger baseball cap or whatever. And I'd go in and I was able to tap into the 15-year-old in me that maybe needed some of that work. If I would come in in my therapist gear, like dress for therapy, mm. into my therapist's mm-hmm. office, the therapy was different. Interesting. It was I, I, sure. I, I was more of this adult version of me now doing therapy versus the kid. Yeah. And it's funny when I'll have people come in for therapy, depending on what they're wearing, mm. it's interesting about how they then present. Mm. You know, if they're coming in, if a female yeah. executive is coming in and she's got the the, sure. this, the pants suit on sure. and everything, she's an executive. She, yeah. She's in executive mode. But if she came in arbitrarily at seven o'clock that night or ten o'clock on a Saturday, right, and she was wearing jeans and tennis shoes, whatever, the therapy is at times different. Yeah, no, I totally get that. Are you buttoned up or are you dressed down? Yeah, and how does that affect the, the therapy? Well, and I wonder what kind of guidelines there are in your profession around this, because like I can just, or if there are guidelines around this, and what are the best practices, and what has shown to have the best metrics or, you know, healthy outcomes, right? Because I'm just thinking again about my own experience. And I, I go to see my shrink at 7 PM on a Monday night and it works well for me, but what I, in it, I've done that for a long time, but I have seen him during business hours, right? From time to time, you have to reschedule or whatever. And I can just tell you that it's totally different because I go in amped up and I can't, when I leave, I have to get right back in the game versus if I go at seven o'clock and I leave at eight o'clock at night, I come in, my day is over. And so I'm a little, I'm more, maybe I'm more stressed, but maybe I'm also more relaxed. I'm not on edge or I'm not in it, but then I leave at eight and it's the end of my night and I can just process everything better. I, again, I feel like I'm getting more out of my session by going at the end of the day versus the middle of the day. Well, that's interesting in that I just, I started with a new client and ended with a new client fairly quickly in that 
this client only had time to come in at seven o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. And by the time he got to my office, he was spent from his workday. Yeah. And so he'd come in and he'd very just kind of like twisting in his, in, in his seat. And we did this maybe for four or five sessions over four or five weeks. And he decided, you know what? I can't do this. I can't do this time because I'm just so exhausted. Yeah. And, you know, maybe at some point I'll see him again when his schedule opens up and right. maybe he comes in at three o'clock in the afternoon mm -hmm. because time is so important, I think, for the client. Can they go ahead and do the work at 10 a.m. Mm -hmm. better than they could do it at 7 p.m.? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, time. Mm -hmm. And also, as a therapist, for me, you know, I start my day around 10 a.m. Mm -hmm. by 7 o'clock for myself even. And I just, now I tend to not take a 7 o'clock client because I know that, you know what, I'm done. Yeah, Time is very, very important. And it's interesting you talk about, you know, circling back to like, say, an executive type that comes in at 1 o'clock in the afternoon on a lunch break, knowing I am going back into my office after this. Mm -hmm. They, I find, will not allow themselves to go to those depths yeah. because they know they have to go back and perform at the office. Right. If they came in on a Saturday morning or came in at the end of the workday, it's totally different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So shifting gears just for a little bit, you tend to see, because you're in LA and you, this is an entertainment-centric town, you tend to see a lot of entertainment professionals, many of whom are executives, but I'm guessing a lot of them are artists. So when I say artists in a broad sense, so they're actors or writers or producers or directors, all those people are artists. You know, what are some of the common struggle that you see? Are there common struggles across those different labors? You know, you're only as good as your last project. There's a yeah. lot of that, mm -hmm. right? So there's always that constant need to prove mm -hmm. yourself because the competition is so fierce, yeah. yeah, right? So just because you did a great documentary that did great at Sundance one year, last year, it's like, okay, that was last year. So that pressure to continually have to perform, mm -hmm. to put out new product because to put out good product because there's there's someone right behind you. Yeah. You know, it's just amazing how I'll think about, you know, some filmmakers that, that I've loved over the years and I'm just like, where are they? Yeah. Right? So the competition is, is can sometimes just break you down. So I find a lot of that that just they, they, they're looking in the, in the rearview mirror at the competition behind them. That becomes difficult. Interesting. Interesting. It's like the curse of success, right? It's like, how do you stay on top? Oh, right. Yeah. And, and, or, well, first of all, how do you get on top? Yep. You know, and then once you're there, how do you stay on top? Yep. I don't know. I mean, kind it's of- It's exhausting. It's yeah, exhausting well, for them. Well, and going back to, I guess, this kind of more fundamental theme about stress and managing it and what have you. Meditate. Meditate. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I mean, I think that meditation, everyone, you know, there's a lot of people who won't do meditate because I'm like, I don't, I don't have, I don't do it right. You know, I'm not doing it right. No, that's, if you set yeah. the intention, yeah. you know, to go ahead and sit for 10 minutes right. and use whatever app you need, if you need yeah. it, or just do it by yourself, and you set the intention of sitting yourself for 10 minutes and just, you know, slowly counting inhalations and exhalations mm -hmm. and listening to the different sounds and whatnot, just putting in that work will be kind of soothing for you. And I totally get that and agree with that. And Do you um, meditate? Not often. At times, and I don't have a regular practice. I should, but I exercise fairly regularly. I do other things. I dance with my kids randomly and, and often. That is hugely therapeutic. Mm, um, families that dance together stay together. I'm going to come over more often. So I can yes, come on over, kids. man. Shake your booty with <laughs> the with the powers. So, but the point I want to get at because going back to talking about core drivers for stress, right? Because I feel like it's that old saying: like if you pull the weed, you don't get the root. 
the weed's going to grow back, right? And so in this case, like I wonder to what extent artists, your clients perhaps, and other artists out there are under so much stress because they have unrealistic expectations, right, about their work or their success or their happiness or what have you. Like, so for example, you know, we live in a culture of instant gratification. We live in a culture, we're fetishizing productivity and performance and and Same. and success. And there's this culture about, well, read this book, apply this philosophy, do this technique, and it's going to expedite your success, your happiness, your productivity, your performance, you're going to achieve. And the reality is like, I feel like that is just setting people up for failure nine times out of 10, because it feels like to me, life and finding success, however you define it and finding happiness, however you define it, it's a long play. It's not so right. I get, I have a lot of artists types in all parts of the industry that do get seduced by the finish line, yeah. the trophy on the mantle, right? And it's hard for me not to go ahead and think you're missing it. Yeah, You're not understanding that it's part of the journey. Yeah, It's part of the ride. Right. It isn't, you know, because if you've already thinking, you've already lost the moment, if you're already thinking about, you know, the trophy on the mantle, it's kind of like, who's that for? Right. Right. Is that for other people? Are you, who are you doing this for then? Yeah. Are you doing this for yourself? We're doing this for other people. Right. Right. So it's all about, you know, being able to go ahead and really take stock. Why are you doing this? Why do you want to become an actor? Why do you want to be a painter? Why do you want to be a writer? Yeah. Who are you doing this for? Yeah. Right. And sometimes I'll even go back with some of my clients and talk to them, ask them, remind me, who are you doing this for? Mm. And sometimes they've forgotten. Right. Yeah. And that right. becomes, that becomes wow. somewhat perhaps a sad realization mm. is I've forgotten who I'm doing this for. Yeah. Let's go back then and think about, when you started, right? When you started painting, how did it make you feel? Yeah. Right? Well, I, felt, I felt alive. I felt like I could go ahead and express myself in a way that I couldn't as a child. Think about that moment for a second. How does it make you feel? Where does that resonate in your body? Well, I'm feeling that in my heart right now. Yeah. That's what, you, that's what you're seeking then, yeah. right? Reminding yourself, why am I doing this? Yeah. Who am I doing this for? Yeah. So going back to yeah. the root, yes. right? The root that you yes. planted, Yes. right? That maybe he's gotten out of control. Right. Right. Maybe you haven't done the proper maintenance on it. Mm. Go back to the root of why you started this pursuit. Yes. Any pursuit. Why did you go to law school? Why do you want to learn how to be a chef? Why are you doing it? Some people, unfortunately, can't change direction, maybe. Yeah. Right. They're like, all right. So how do you go ahead and rethink that? Right. Right. I am pot committed at this point. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah, These yeah, are yeah. the cards that I've got. I put all my chips in. Now, how do I be okay with it? Yeah. Right. 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 Which in of itself can be hundred percent extremely existentially challenging. Yes. Of, I this is my life. I have done this myself. I'm sixty-two years old, say, and I can't make perhaps like a professional change, but maybe you could start doing something on a personal level that makes everything else maybe more palatable. Mm -hmm. Do something a bit different. Start a new hobby. Learn a foreign language. Do volunteer some, something. Volunteer. I mean, yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, they talk about the metrics of volunteer work that, you know, you get back 10 times what you give into it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, obviously everybody's journey is, you know, unique to them and it, it's, there is no silver bullet, but there, it feels like there are principles and there are values and there are concepts that, that can be healthier than others, right? Or, or, you know, and so I guess what I'm getting at is this idea of, of why you do something. Like, if you don't enjoy the process, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. 
I might disagree a little bit with that. Okay. Push back a bit with that because, you know, there's that great Hemingway line, I don't write, I bleed. So, mm. you know, so for some artists, mm. it is that kind of wrenching experience, yeah. you know, where they put their soul and it's hard and it's difficult. But maybe though, at the end of the day, like with Hemingway, maybe he can be, he can be, he can look at that, the blood on the pages and go, I'm really proud of what I've done. Yeah. If it is being this, if it's dysfunctional, well, Hemingway might, might be the best example of that because yeah. he did go a little crazy and then did eventually. Well, he had mental health issues. Well, they killed clearly. himself. Yeah, they killed right. himself. So, yeah. I mean, but he still, though, I don't. I think if you asked Hemingway today, would you do it? How would you do it differently? I don't know if you would do it differently. Well, he seemed like a guy that sort of lived life on his own terms. He went out on his own terms. And he went which, on his own by the terms. way, I respect quite totally. frankly. Yeah, takes a lot of courage. But you talk about the reevaluation, though. Was it? Were you, were you hinting at maybe a reevaluation of what you're doing? No, no. What I'm getting, I guess, what I'm getting at is that at least what I've learned in my own life, in my own artistic creative journey, is that the compensation has often been in the process. Like I love the the process of creating and of producing and of I like the nature of my work. There's compensation in that, and if then if I'm able to then take my work and monetize it further, obviously that's the point. There's rent to pay, but some months are better than others, and some years are better than others, and the fluctuation of my revenue or my compensation varies greatly, but my happiness doesn't because I love what I do. I love the process, yep. and that's what I'm getting at. I mean, if you don't. Because, you know, a lot of artists say, oh, I'm waiting for inspiration. Well, you know what? Chuck Close said inspiration is for amateurs. I mean, Chuck, part, Chuck Close said that? Yeah. I love that. And him. part of it is about the work. I mean, you have, if you're Hemingway, if you're a writer, if you're a painter, whatever, yeah, you got to go and do the work. And, and a lot of times it's painstaking. You're not going to be inspired, but you work through that to get to the inspiration, to get to the, you know, and you've got to just enjoy the the process of the work. Yeah, Stephen King, you know, wrote that famous book on writing, mm. you know, and Stephen King's one of the most yeah. prolific writers we've ever seen. Mm. It's unbelievable. I'm not sure if he's- at Never 50, heard of him. 56 books. Yeah. He's written some really interesting books, Scott. Um, <laughs> yeah. I've actually been on a bit of a Stephen King jag. Oh, yeah. I've been reading a little bit of Stephen King. But, you know, he talks about the process of writing of just like putting in, you know, the, the 3,000, you know, words a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. then setting your time from, say, nine to noon or nine to one- and that's what you write and you just right. do it and you right. do without fail. You don't really right. edit yourself right. and you just get it down, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah. Right. So, I mean, it just depends on how you envision yourself as an artist. What kind of work do you need to do? You know, is it a, is it a 14 hour purging or is it a one hour a day? You know, what works for you? Well, it feels like, you know, intention and motivation, all these things going back to what you're saying about why are you doing something? Like if you're doing something just for the money, mm -hmm. right? then you got to explore that. For example, in your case, right, you got to a point where it sounds like you decided you had a moment of clarity where it's like, no, you know what? Like, I want to help people. I want to help myself. I want to go into therapy. And then when it came time to logging in your 1,000 hours or 3,000 hours, whatever it was, to get your license, like that wasn't daunting to you. Well, it's interesting circling back to this idea of you're mm. doing it all for the money. Yeah. You know, when I got out of Hollywood and was trying to figure out what to do, with myself and, you know, my dad, you know, he was a stock trader and, and he had said to me, Hey, why don't you, why don't you come in and, and, and we'll trade together. And my whole life in for the next couple of years was consumed around making money. Yeah. Wow. And I was so unhappy mm. on a daily basis because right. I'd have my good days and have my bad days. 
my life was consumed about the dollar signs yeah. and my relationship with my girlfriend, Sharon, that wife. Shout um, out, Sharon. It struggled. Yeah. And I had to go to therapy because I was a mess. And it was in therapy after you know six months that I realized with my working with this great therapist that I didn't want my life to be consumed around making money. I wanted to do some soulful work. Yeah. And then that's when she said you'd be you'd be a great therapist. And I wasn't baiting her. I wasn't like I wasn't like I didn't need that from her. Right. But that's why it made sense. It's like, yeah. you know what? That is meaningful work. I mean, isn't that what we all kind of strive for is to do meaningful work that, mm. that matters, you know, that has purpose. Yeah. Yeah. I saw my dad go to work to a job every day that he hated. And he did it dutifully. He did it honorably. He did it for his family. He did it for his kids. He liked being an electrician. He liked building homes. But he... I didn't know that. Your dad was an electrician? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. But he also worked for... I, I was. I grew up in the Midwest outside Chicago near Gary, Indiana. And so the uh, sort of the industrial rust belt in some ways, and there's a lot of steel mills in there. And uh, so my dad worked for U.S. Steel for 30 years and would drive to Gary, Indiana and go to a dirty, dingy, hot, dangerous steel mill and work doing electrical work, you know, sometimes thousand feet in the air. Noble work. No, I mean, just, you know, hey, honorable, noble work. But he he hated it. And but he did it dutifully, and he did would it. He bring, would he bring it back that energy and negativity home? No, no. He was my dad's a very stoic guy. He's good at hiding it. Very, yeah, very so stoic man's man. Uh, do your work and then come home and go work more. <laughs> well, I think that's why family connection is so important. If you're doing a job that you really hate, and you go home and you have a, you're appreciated, say from you know your family for that hard work. Yeah, right. You're able then to go ahead and be embraced by a loving family and you can have those wonderful moments, then it makes it like, you know, then it makes it worth it, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it was interesting because I mean, just growing up, watching him was inspirational on a lot of levels. But I also knew I didn't want to be a corporate suit either. But I did know that I wanted to have what I considered to be a unconventional, interesting life. Which you've had. Congratulations. Well, Thank you, but I, you know, I'm not dead yet. No, but I mean, the point is, is that you have to, I think you have to have a vision, right, for what you want your life to be. You have to have the courage enough to pursue that vision. You have to have a lot of luck, you know, um, so on much your, luck. you know, so all that luck. stuff. And that's the thing. I think luck gets a, gets underrated. I mean, really, <laughs> you know, I mean, it really does. I mean, time and place of meeting certain people, you know, and then it becoming some sort of domino effect that all of a sudden, you know, you've got a great life and blah, blah. Yes, absolutely. So all these things line up and or they don't. And, and then you're so you're dealt with a certain amount of cards and you play the cards you're dealt with. And by the way, like I was dealt in many ways a very fair hand and I might have played it well and had some good luck. But believe me, I mean, there are people that were dealt shitty cards that played far better and did far better than I did. But that doesn't mean I'm any less happy. And that doesn't mean that they're any more happy. Yeah. You know, because I think that goes back to so many of these things. It's like, are you enjoying the nature of your work? Are you enjoying the process? Are you being fair to yourself? Are you loving yourself? Are you taking care of yourself? Are you having the right expectation and the right perspective? You know, Eleanor Roosevelt said she had so many great, great quotes, but one of them was, happiness is a byproduct. And what she mean, meant by that is that 
this this notion that we should always be happy, right? Yeah. Our parents, they just want us to be happy. Yeah, yeah. That's by the way, a lot of pressure. Yeah, yeah, right. For, for a child right. or a young adult. Right. Say, oh, if I'm not happy, I'm doing it wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eleanor Roosevelt with the line, happiness is a byproduct. What she means by that is just having if you have meaning and purpose in your life, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're going to be happy along the way. Right. Yeah, for sure. And you know, it's like that old saying too about the only thing you really can control is your attitude, mm. you know, and again, those things in our environment that we have control of managing them, you know, in a healthy way, our attitude is a big, is, is one of the things that we can control. Absolutely. And so what are you bringing? Are you bringing positivity or negativity? And I, you know, I bring both. I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm some positive guy all the time. Fuck no. Matter of fact, talk to the people who are closest to me. They probably tell you <laughs> that I'm, I can be very negative and dark, but that's just because I'm aware of you know my mortality, I guess. Well, I but, think that exists in all of us, the light and the dark, right? It yeah. depends. Are we, more, are we more one over the other? Is it, is it right. fairly you know fairly? Well, equal? you know, you said something earlier I wanted to comment on because it's like somebody wants to, I remember years ago at work, I was frustrated over a client and I felt like the client was being unreasonable or whatever the case it was. And my boss, who was 30 years, 20 years my senior anyway, you know, one of these sage white hairs that been there, seen it all, done it all. And he sort of put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Scott, he goes, it's not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just a real thing. Hmm. And, and I was like, wow, that's like kind of sage advice. You know? It is sage advice. Um, I think it's sage advice. I think that w- that advice resonate w- could resonate more effectively if you're brought up with that. <laughs> right. Right. Sure. I mean, because I think at early ages, we're taught, you know, what's negative, what's positive, what's good, what's bad mm. versus this idea of it's just being real. I think if you're brought up fortunately enough or luckily enough with that type of idea or notion, I think that, you, that you're able to go ahead and that will, you've been able to root in that Versus the idea now you're saying about someone saying that to you now, yeah. which I love it in theory. I'd love to practice that in theory. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, all of the stuck in traffic. This is a real moment. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Right? This yeah. is neither good nor bad. Right. This just is. This just is. This yeah. is, right? It seems like that would probably be some sort of Buddhist type yeah. of thing, right? It just is. Yeah. Why, why do we have to put a judgment on it? Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you say that because in my own work, my own therapist, but I've seen him for a long time now, but early on he would say, because I always refer to myself as an asshole, like I'm a fucking asshole, blah, blah, you know, and he called me on and he said, Scott, you're not an asshole. You're just a good person with flaws, you know? And I was like, why do I have to be a good person with flaws? Like, I just want to, I, can I just be a human being? That is a human being. Right. I mean, a human being, we're all flawed, right? No, no, exactly. Yeah. And that for me, like, cause that's like, I, I guess I want to get to a point where I don't think of the terms that I, I don't want to think in terms of like, I'm a good person or a bad person or I'm an asshole or I'm a good person. Like, I just want to be, a, I just want to be, I just want to be a human being. I just want to be cool with being a human being yep. with all of our blessings and curses. You know, I know that we wanted to talk a bit more about artists and how, you know, during these stressful times, what they can be doing yes. to refuel or to uh, be able to weather where the vicissitudes, the ups and downs of yeah. their crafts take them, which reminds me of, you know, because I think you're hinting at, at that a lot of artists ultimately fail along their journeys, mm. right? They're constantly, even going to an audition and not getting it, yeah, right? You right. have failed, yeah, right? right. Uh, putting a, a painting up in a, in a cafe that you want to sell for X amount of money and it's not getting sold. Well, I guess I've failed, yeah. right? 
Eleanor Roosevelt, mm. another great quote. Mm. If you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough. Yeah. Right. right so right. they were always failing. Yes. I will go ahead and I'll, I'll, I'll make an interpretation or use a metaphor in therapy that might not land at all well. Mm. Maybe it was a clumsy um, mm. analogy or a clumsy metaphor, a mm. clumsy me interpretation, but I'm putting myself out there. Yeah. Right. And I'm okay with failing. Yeah. Right. As long if we can get better at, I think we need to just get better at failing. And what, you know, now there's, you know, all these other kinds of philosophies or adages or proverbs or what have you that talk about if you're learning, you're not failing. If you quote, if you didn't meet the goal, okay, fine. You can feel bad about that. You needed that goal to achieve that goal for various reasons, but. Did you learn? Can you up your game from that? Can you improve next time? Can you, you know, and there's value and compensation in that. What are your thoughts though about everyone gets a trophy? Like, you know, the kids will be in soccer or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And, and you know, right. using that as an example, like everyone gets a trophy. Right. First place, second place, tenth place. Everyone gets something. Yeah. Well, of course, we all come from our own experiences, right? I mean, I grew up at a time where, you know, only winners got trophies. And sometimes I got a trophy and sometimes I didn't. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot losing, probably more from losing than more from winning. So when it comes to giving every kid a trophy, I fear that we do them a disservice because life in life, life is hard. Life is tough. Life is indifferent. You need to have a thick skin. You need to have endurance and perseverance and resilience and grit. And I don't know that giving a kid a trophy for mediocre performance or just showing up is necessarily teaching them grit. I'm not an expert. I don't know. I think the jury's out. We'll see maybe after it's too late. Well, uh, John, Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Hate, H-A-I-D-T, I, -D -T, I okay. believe. Okay. He's written a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. Yeah. Kind of believes that, you know, that we are coddling yeah. the generations below us a bit too much. Yeah. And that they're not maybe getting this grit that they need that in the in, you know in corporate America when they're let go. What do you mean I'm let go? I'm fired for what? I'm sorry. I'm showing up. I'm doing the best that I can. Don't I get a trophy? No, you're fired. You can go look for a new job, right? And then they're moving back home. So I think that I need to actually read this book. I know he's got a, he's doing the podcast rounds himself, mm -hmm. but I do think I appreciate that little Timmy is doing his best on the soccer field, and his team comes in in tenth, and they lose. And I want to go ahead and say, hey, you know what, mm -hmm. bud, you did great. To, you did great this season. I'm so proud of you. Mm -hmm. Can't that be enough? Shouldn't that be enough versus the medallion or the trophy? Right. You know, why okay, can't that or, be enough? Yeah, or let's flip it and just say this: nobody gets a trophy or a medal. Nobody. That's you literally shut. You really show up. You play the game. The score is the score. The scores. Wait. So at the end of the day, at the end of the season, no one gets a trophy for best. No, no. You just, you just know you were the best. You just know you were the best. Like it's like the, if you're keeping score, oh, you're I got catching, you. So you know you what I mean? Know. There's, so, there's no symbol. Oh, I, I kind of love that. So okay, so if you have ten teams and you're still keeping a record of how those ten teams did, yeah. And say the Cobras were fourteen and zero, and the second place Zebras were thirteen and one. You know that the Cobras, the Cobras know. So they don't need to have a whole the pageantry of, of getting a trophy. They know they don't need the jewelry. Mm, I like that. I think that would be very effective. You know, it, it's just like okay, we all know the. It's a focus on the data. It's a focus on the numbers. Focus yeah. on the facts. Why do you need all the symbols and all the jewelry that goes with it? Because that's what people have start obsessing about, right? Sure. That's the external kind of representation of that kind of right information. So you know what? Just take it away. 
I always think it's nice to have a little bit of a stake in something that you do get. You do get something that shows. Well, then that yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, you know, it's like I'll play a poker game and with the boys. It doesn't matter if the buy-in is five dollars or five hundred dollars. Yeah, it doesn't matter, right? It's about did I get all the chips this this time or not? Right, right, right. right. It's all about that kind of competition and having a little bit, having something that is tactile mm. that you can feel that you can showcase. You know, for your efforts. I just don't think that everyone necessarily should get something. Well, no, no, it's fascinating because I mean. When you give a trophy to everyone, then suddenly, how is the trophy valuable? It's a bit diminished, isn't it? Right. Yeah. And so, but then if you take it away, then it equally, then it doesn't have any value either. Yeah. But maybe in a better way, but or not. Maybe, you know, I, I listen, again, I'm biased, right? I can't, I grew up wanting that trophy. Yep. And sad when I didn't get it. And I think why I'm, I'm bringing this up is like those that, that go to auditions, a lot of the actors that I see will go to auditions and they become so frustrated by not getting it, thinks that it's unfair. And a lot of them or some of them, I think did grow up in a bit of a coddling atmosphere yeah. where they were told that they were the best, which, hey, you know, I think that that's a parent's job in some ways is to continue to tell your kids how great they're doing. And maybe they were always told that they were doing great. Then the hard life hits them in the face of, oh my God, there are people as good, if not better than me. Yeah. And having to then go ahead and reckon with that like I'm not as good or as special as I once thought I was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, a lot of these kids, right? I mean, they were the they were the hottest, most talented, most beautiful person in their small town USA. They won the the medals and the trophies, and then they said, "Oh, well, if I better go to LA." And it turns out they're just a dime a dozen in LA. Yeah. And that's got to be a shock. A shock. Yeah. I, I know it was a shock for me when I came out of high school. I started working when I was 13, but and work, I had some real jobs. I mean, working work, the work in the docks. Working the docks. I did start working at 13 on construction sites because my dad was in construction and what have you. But then in high school, I worked as a physical and occupational therapy aide for a couple of years in hospitals in the area. But then in, in high school, right out of high school, I started working at a publishing company three months before my freshman year of college. We started in June of 1988. And the, the point is, is that suddenly... I was put in this environment where I realized like I was no one. I was nobody. I was less than no one. And my boss was not a coddling boss. My on my first day of work, my boss told me, Scott, welcome. We're glad to have you. But I want to just tell you a couple things. He said, some people will tell you that there are no stupid questions. I don't believe that. I think there are stupid questions and I don't want you coming to me with the stupid questions. Oof. And I want you to use your brain, try to figure out the best solution. And when you can't figure it out, then you come to me and you ask me about it, but then you still bring some possible solutions. Don't just bring me problems. And I mean, he was like, literally, I'm 18 years old and I'm hearing this going, holy fuck, like this is so not what I expected. Now, was he right? Who knows? But I, in hindsight, you know, almost 32 years later or whatever, I'm grateful for it. When you first said this to me, I was just, I was a bit like, oh no. I mean, I think that's a bit harsh. Mm, it was I, totally harsh. I, I would think that, I understand what he's saying. Yeah. He's like, he doesn't want to make it easy for you. Right. Right. So it's kind of like, I would hope that he would say to you, before you ask me the question, did you exhaust everything that you could in trying to figure out the answer for yourself? Right. That's right. And if you could then authentically say, I did, then he should then be able to go ahead and say, 
ask me your question and it's no longer a stupid question. Right. That's you know right. what I mean? Yeah, that's right. Well, listen, I mean, it was, although, although it freaked me out in the moment, I would eventually come to really believe that it was very empowering. And yet he could never do that now. I don't think an 18-year-old kid coming into that job now would have, I mean, they would have tweeted it, blogged it. My boss said this, and then there would have been all these haters piling on the boss for being an asshole, you know, like, and, you know, at the end of the day, like, I just feel like I was ultimately better for it just because it was a lesson in real life. Do you employ that with your own kids? It's fascinating. That's a great question. My approach to parenting, it stresses me out. I mean, being a parent stresses me out because, you know, obviously it's, you know, you're trying not to kill them or fuck them up too much. Isn't the ultimate goal is to give your kids the, the tools to survive without you? Ultimately? Yes. Ultimately, in my, the way I think about it is I am trying to create the space for them to become who they're meant to become. And that's it. And so sometimes that means being hands on. Sometimes that means being hands off. You know, I don't want to be a helicopter parent. I don't want to be a snow plowing parent. What's I, a, what's a, I don't even know what a snow plowing. Oh, plow. you haven't heard this phrase? No. Oh, yeah. This is the new thing. What's now. snow plow? Yeah. So plowing or snow plowing is this notion or idea that a parent is clearing the way of all of life's troubles and and hassles so that they have this smooth transition. Well, that would, that would be circling back. To the the coddling approach, hundred percent. Right? It's a hundred percent coddling. Yeah, and in ten x, and you know, for me, I'm not. You know, I don't. If my kid rides their bike without a helmet, I tell them to wear the helmet. They don't wear the helmet, they fall and hurt themselves. Yeah, you know what? I feel bad, but at the end of the day, they learn something. <laughs> you know, yep. like yep. I'm not yep. going to freak out. I mean, it's and I'm digressing, but I mean, getting back to your question, I mean, I'm not trying to make my kid's life easy. I, they, it's inherently easy because they, you know, grew up on a, I guess I, I'm wondering like if either of your kids said, Hey daddy, why is the sky blue mm. is to say, you know what? It's a great question. Yeah. I want you for a moment to think about why you think the sky is blue. Mm. Right. And then if you want to tell me that now, great. If you need a few minutes or an hour, fantastic. Come back, circle back with me and then tell me why you think it's blue. Yeah. And then they come back and they say, well, we, I think it's blue because it just is. That's It's painted that way. And mm-hmm. you go, you know what? That is a great, that could be a great answer. I yeah. love that answer. Yeah. We could go with that, right? Or we could go ahead that it's the sun hitting the oceans and it's illuminating the sky blue. Yeah. Right? That could be the answer too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Or giving them actually the, the real answer, which I think actually that is a real answer. But allowing them the opportunity to go ahead and try yeah. to answer the question. 100%. I think I do a good job, reasonably, asking them what they think empowering them to make a choice, so on and so forth. Well, I think, you know, circling back to the, to the, again, to the art artists, why am I not getting the painting sold? Why am I not getting the audition? Why yeah. am I, why am I, why am I, why do you think you're not? Yeah. Why do you think you're not? Well, the competition is too fierce or blah, 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 blah. That could be. It's like there are always a lot of artists that are struggling. Why? Why yeah. is this happening? Well, let me you ask know? you this though, real quick, because I can tell you, and again, artistic community is not a monolithic community, right? I mean, it is anything but. It is very diverse. Well, yeah. you. I mean, you live in this world much more than I do. Well, but even even in, in the, you know, when I talk about the artist community, artistic community, I'm talking about the creative economy, which includes architects to actors to painters to, you know, reality is, quite frankly, there are a lot of 
folks out there, and this gets back to having realistic expectations, like I feel like a lot of creatives out there just have unrealistic expectations. And quite frankly, there's a high amount, high level, it seems, of immaturity and narcissism that's impacting their performance and impacting their success. I always wrestle with doing some reality testing yeah. with artists, yeah. with actors. I will, I don't know if educate's the right word, but I will go ahead and tell them the odds of you becoming a working actor is 1%. Right. You have a 99% chance of it not, yeah. not happening. Yeah. 1%. And what I mean by working actor is that you're making over $40,000 a year. Right. Right. It's like the, the odds are stacked so much against you yeah. that you have to want to do this more than anything else. I can't do anything else but act. Right. That I love it so much and I'll do anything for it. I'll work odd jobs. I don't care because I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. By the way, if you're that person, you've won right. in many ways. That's right. That's it's right. those that you know are thinking about stardom and all of that. Those are the ones that that often you know struggle. And I don't want to go ahead and, and dissuade anybody really mm -hmm. from pursuing their craft. Yeah. I just want them to know how difficult it is to yeah. go ahead and make any of it really work or yeah. get seen. Yeah. You know, I was talking to an artist the other day and we were sort of talking about some of these issues and it, it, within the visual art community, specifically in contemporary arts. And we were talking, there was this one artist in particular who was on one hand completely against signing a contract, which is business 101, and bitching about their station in life, right? Or the station in their career. And I said, you know what? As soon as you refuse to sign that contract, or you have some sort of like idealistic protest against signing, you know, a corporate document or whatever, then you also forfeit your right to bitch about your station in life, right? Because again, getting back to the game, like if this is the game you're choosing to play, then you've got to play by the rules. Right. And the rules are that you sign that fucking contract. Yep. So it feels like, you know, sometimes when it comes to a lot of this, Push you know, our, our, an artist's success and an artist's station in life, they're their own worst enemies. And some of them just need to grow the fuck up. What do you think of, I think I take a lot of umbrage with how people will label somebody a sellout. Yeah. 100%. You know, yeah. oh, they totally sold out. Right, that they've got a song now, you know, on a Vons commercial or whatever. Right. Everyone ultimately wants to get heard, wants to get seen, and wants to get paid. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. oh, there's such a sellout. Yeah, I They're wonder just jealous and envious, and it could be that too, right? That jealousy. And, and I think that's they, what it is more times than not. They're just jealous and envious. They don't know what to do with those feelings, and so. And they're not even self-aware enough to understand that they're jealous and yep. envious. Yep. And so they just hate. Yep. And I just think a lot of times there's immaturity, there's lack of sophistication. You can't have it both ways. Lately, I've been saying, you know, being a starving artist should be a personal choice, not an occupational hazard. Mm. And that's part of why we're doing everything we're doing with Not Real Art and the conference and the podcast and stuff, because, you know, we're just trying to empower. Yep. And we don't have a silver bullet. It's hard. I mean, 80, 90% of small businesses fail. I don't care if you get into the game, it's hard. 99, to your point about being an actor. You know, that's why you have to love what you do. You have to. The artists that you sit down and talk with, mm. what are you finding that they're struggling with most on a mental health perspective? Wow. Is it depression? Is it anxiety? Is it something even further than that? I mean, is it just, what are you seeing? What are they lamenting about? What are they, is it fear-based? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I, I got to be careful because I don't want to paint with a broad brush stroke because I think a lot of it is very you know, unique and, in, and individualized. 
And also, by the way, not only in your in, in that industry. I mean, this is pervasive. Yeah. Right. In, yeah. In, insert yeah. occupation here. Right. For any because everyone's struggling. Yeah. 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 You know, with either the anxieties or or but maybe artists. I don't know. Do artists? Do you think that? Do you think that they suffer more? Well, I, I think arguably artists, in my experience, and you know, I've known medical professionals, I've known finance professionals, I've known people in other industries. Artists, I think, do tend to be more at risk emotionally somehow, and mentally. They, in this again, I could be totally wrong. This is just my observation, but I would, I think, they tend to deal with maybe or wrestle with depression more. Mm. That's again just my. And what, and what then what came first, right? The, 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 the depression before being an artist? Did we, was it all already there? Right. Pre predisposition biologically already there, which then led them into painting or acting or music or whatever it is, right? Yeah, yeah. And then when you're not being successful and you're struggling, does the, the depression, you know, are you triggered more by your depressive composition? Yeah. You know, and I think people, artists too, I'll just say it this way. I think it's not just unique to artists, it's people. I mean, people believe a lot of bullshit out there. Like if I don't sell out or if I'm true to my values or if I just try harder or if I you know, like this incense, whatever it is. Sure. And you need to do whatever you need to do, right? But the reality is it's fucking hard. And nine times out of 10, it boils down to dumb luck. And yeah, net that's why networking is so important. You know, in, in any field, but perhaps more in the arts game of networking, meeting people, introducing yourself, just continuing. It's, that's also part of the game. So difficult for me early on in my career mm. to go in my uh, being a therapist because I was, uh, you know, I had to go ahead and sell myself and I had to go do a lot of cold calling and yeah. knock on doors and right. And, right and go, hi. Nobody likes cold calling. I don't care who you are. It sucks. It's awful. Right, but you have to do that. As, you have to do that as an artist. You've got to go ahead and, and and put the work in. Yeah, you know, it's not just about the painting or the sculpture or the script, or you know that you can go ahead and memorize Shakespeare. It that's part of it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many facets to being able to be successful, and a lot of it's that that little bit of of work that people really do kind of resent. The art should just speak for itself. Sometimes it doesn't. Hell no, it doesn't. And you know, the reality is. The art world, there's not a supply problem. It's, there's a demand problem. There's way more art out there than, than there are people that know about it. Yeah. Um, and we have to then do, we have to do the differentiating in many ways. And I say that, you know, we, the executives or, or because you just, as you said, there's so much product out, so many, so much great yes. product out there that's not being seen, not being heard, not being read. That's you right. know, can you imagine? Right. I mean, there's got to be so much out there that we're never going to see the light of day of. And, and we'll just end with this, but like that is exactly why we created Not Real Art, the conference, the podcast, and the grant, because strategically and fundamentally, we exist to help artists tell their stories and promote their work. And that is because we feel like artists, first and foremost, have a demand problem. And we want to address that demand problem. And the demand is about addressing the demand problem, is it's a marketing problem. It's a storytelling problem. We want to leverage storytelling and, and entertainment and edutainment in ways that make art and artists more accessible, more friendly, more available to people out there in the world who might be intimidated or turned off by the conventional art world, you know, with its multi-million dollar price tags and its fancy people. The reality is the artwork, quote unquote, 
that gets bought at Bed Bath & Beyond or Target or, you know, you, you, we've all seen these prints, right? These prints that you can buy at the local Kohl's or whatever. That is a $60 billion industry. It's called the wall. It's called wall decor, the wall decor industry. The wall decor industry is a $60 billion industry. Don't tell me that one, two, three or 4% of those people wouldn't buy original art. Oh, a, a thousand percent. You know, it's funny because, you know, I, you have such great art in your house. And, you know, over the years, I've collected a few pieces here and there that didn't cost a lot of money. No, exactly. You know, I have these really cool stencils that I have a few of them that I bought maybe for 40, 50, 60 bucks that I love, that I covet. Right. And it makes me think about, and I I wanted to ask you a question and I'll get there. You know, for me, when I started off as a therapist, I just wanted to work. Right. And I would go ahead and say, you know what, if you can pay me 40 bucks, great. You're right. And I was honored for you to be there. Yeah. There are a lot of therapists might get licensed and go, well, no, fuck that. I'm not going to go ahead and do that. I I have student debt perhaps, or, you know, the going rate is 150, 200. No, I'm going to, I'm going to charge them 150 to 200 and they're not working. Right. And I wonder for artists, I wonder mm. if like, you know, just arbitrarily using painters as the example or the, or the graffiti artists or, or the stencils, do you find that some are charging too much money from the onset versus just trying to go ahead and get their name out there, get their work out there and could even lower their rate, so to speak? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you have both extremes. So you have artists that are absolutely overcharging because they have an overinflated sense of sense of self of what of self and of what their art is worth and what the market will bear. Again, many of these artists and many people don't understand business 101 and one of the principles of business 101 is understanding what the market will bear in terms of your price. And absolutely you should charge as much as you can get, but what can you get realistically? So you have to have that honest conversation with yourself. But then on the other hand, you have artists who are absolutely giving their work away for free mm. and they should could not you, be doing could, that. Could you please tell me who those are? Because so, <laughs> right? I've got exactly. some role space. Uh, exactly. Well, listen, I mean, there was, and, and this is a, a, another shameless plug here for the conference, but one of the panels I'm excited about this year at the conference is a panel called Exposure Bucks, How Loving Your Work is Killing Your Business. And this is because... People who are passionate about their work, and it's not just artists, it's, it's therapists, it's lawyers, it's doctors, it, you know, are more vulnerable to exploitation, okay? People who are passionate and love their work are more susceptible to, to be exploited and, uh, because people say, hey, well, I have this need, you know, can you come and it's an opportunity, you know, to do what you love. And so they do it. And so, because they're so passionate about what they do. Because they're so passionate, they think they're they're contributing to social good and something bigger than themselves. And so they want to do it because that's just their heart and their calling. And so they're just more vulnerable to to, to exploitation. Now, we're going to talk about this in the panel. And and what's going to be great about this panel is that there's a Duke University professor, Dr. Aaron Kay, who is arguably the world's preeminent expert right now on this very issue. He's been researching this for years. Not just artists, but doctors and therapy, you know, people who feel like they're contributing to the common good and the greater good, they're just more vulnerable. So he has all this great empirical data to understand this issue. And so on this panel, we're going to talk about this. But we also have this graphic designer on the panel, Sarah Levitz, uh, Lawrence, who's coming from Atlanta. And several years ago, she had been so frustrated by all these clients, big companies asking her to work for free. It'd be great exposure for you if you do this project. And so she created this meme that went viral and it was called, it was just this funny comic of this woman holding these, these like exposure bucks. It was like exposure bucks, pay your rent, buy your groceries, you know, just do it for exposure. 
And so she's going to be on the panel. Awesome. And so- I can't um, wait to see this. Yeah, it's going to be great. great. And so the point is, is that we want to address both of this. It's like, yes, there are people that are overcharging and people that are undercharging. And listen, doing free work or doing pro bono work is absolutely a viable strategy. Lawyers all the time do pro bono meetings. Absolutely. In business, they call them lost leaders. Like, absolutely. How much sampling? We go to Costco. These companies are doing sampling. Oh, have you tried these pigs in a blanket? Have you tried? Oh, let me try that. Oh, yeah, I'll buy that package. Absolutely, you should do some some freebies, but not too much. Yeah. Don't give it all away. Don't give it all away. Brett Hofstein, it has been a pleasure to have you in the studio Thank today, you, my I friend. Really, I really enjoyed this. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to the conference which is in like a couple of weeks. 20, 19 days as of today. It's March 21st. Yeah. And I really enjoyed speaking with you. And, and thank you for having me. It's so great. I hope you come Friday night if you can, it's March my, 20th. It's in my calendar. Okay. We have an art exhibition I'm happening. I'm fully embracing. I'm embracing all of it. All things not real art. Yeah, all things not real art. Brett Hofstein, thank you. Thank you. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode and share it with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, Please be sure to press subscribe and follow us on IG at Not Real Artificial. We appreciate the support. Sourdough out.